we're, we're looking at the book of Ezra again this morning. It's on page 498 in your pew Bibles. Um, so, I don't know if you're following sort of my logic here, but um, we've been spending this whole fall talking about exile, the exile of God's people, and uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible, they're right next to each other, are uh, two books that tell the story of three leaders of God's people uh, who, who brought different waves of exiles back from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So these are people who are kind of getting the people out of Exxon. And so last week it was Zerubbabel, and this week it's going to be Ezra, and next week it'll be Nehemiah. And they all kind of did something different to try to bring God's people back. So if you were here last week, you remember um, the, the Persian Empire had defeated the Babylonians. So this was a big deal, right? Because the Babylonians had been the ones who'd captured uh, the Jews. And so they were the Jews were being held by the Babylonians in Babylon as kind of uh, prisoners, exiles, but uh, when the Persians took over Babylon, they said, basically, you guys are f- free to go back home. And so last week we looked at this guy, uh, Zerubbabel, who took a big group of God's people back to Jerusalem and uh, they rebuilt the temple. Well, this week we are four Persian kings later in about 80 years. Uh, and uh, there's a new king of Persia and he issues a decree a lot like the decree of his great grandfather and he says hey uh, i know that some of you didn't go back in that first wave 80 years ago but if there are any jews in the empire who would like to go back now sort of uh, be my guest and then in his decree which is in chapter 7 it's like verse 12 ish um, he identifies one particular guy uh, this jewish priest kind of a bible teacher named ezra and he says basically Ezra's going to be in charge um, uh, the king of Persia wants Ezra to call the shots. And he says, I, I want Ezra actually to establish the law of your God as the law of Jerusalem. Which is pretty incredible, right? Because you remember the dynamic with Babylon. It was kind of this oppressive empire trying to change the Jews' faith, trying to change the Jews' religion, trying to make them not Jews at all anymore. The Persian king, this is like, Total religious freedom. So they're saying, hey, you guys can govern yourselves the way that you want. It's a big deal. And so Ezra hears this and he gives thanks to God. And and we get kind of a view of Ezra. And and what you need to know about Ezra in the Bible is that he's kind of like Ezra in our church. Uh, He's just a really good guy. Like, there's a lot to like about Ezra. I counted five times just in chapter 7 where we hear how really good Ezra is. So it's verse 6, 10, 11, 25, and 28. And in these verses, the bottom line is, Ezra is this guy who knows God's Word and follows it. And he's a guy who is blessed by God in like everything that he does. Okay? It's, it's almost like Ezra is this guy, he can walk on water. Ezra Ezra's the man. And so Ezra, he's got this sort of edict from the king, these instructions from the king. He gathers this big group of Jews. <coughs> They're going to go with him. And, and right away he calls a fast. Because he's such a good guy, right? So he calls a fast and a prayer. He's like, let's pray for God's protection for this big journey back to Jerusalem. 
And there's kind of a funny little scene in there. It's chapter 8, verse 28. Um, the king of Persia had offered to give the Jews like uh, a military escort. It's like a five-month trip from uh, Babylon to, to Jerusalem. Dangerous roads. They offered like horses and soldiers and stuff. But Ezra had spent so much time talking about how amazing his God is and how his God like protects his people, is going to take care of his people, that he says he felt ashamed. He, he didn't want to ask for help because uh, he'd been saying so many good things about his God. He didn't want to make it seem like he didn't trust God. So he's like, all right, we got to pray now. So they're all praying and they're fasting that God will protect them on the journey. And sure enough, that's just what God does. It's this long journey, dangerous road. They finally get there. And when this big group of people get there, we read they're praising God, they're thanking Him. And they haven't been in town for very many days when some of the leaders uh, who had been living in Jerusalem before take Ezra aside. And they're like, Ezra, we got bad news. Right? And you can read about the bad news. It's, it's chapter 9, verse 1. This is what they tell Ezra. They say, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, those are like leaders, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And then, to make things worse, they add, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. This is bad news. And... uh, for a Bible scholar like Ezra, he knows exactly why this is bad news. This is a clear violation of this policy that God's people had had for a while now. So it's explained most clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the fifth book of the Bible. Um, but basically it goes like this. God didn't want His people like getting all mixed up with all the nations around them. So these were nations, they didn't follow God. They worshipped lots of idols and things like that. And God was like, I don't want... Uh, my people to get caught up with those people. Uh, I'm worried that they're going to lead you astray. And especially, he says, don't marry one of them. That's what he's most worried about. But that's, uh, that's what they've done. Um, and so verse 3 is Ezra's response. It says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard. It's an image for you. Uh, He pulled hair from his head and his beard, and he sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And he says, I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. So you see what's happened. So he's found out what's what's gone wrong, and he's distraught. He's ripping his clothes, he's he's ripping out his hair, like by the handful. And, And he sits down with a bunch of other people. And they just sit there, just distraught. I mean, they're speechless, basically, all day long. Then it comes the time for the evening sacrifices. And Ezra says this prayer. And and his prayer, basically, it's it's got four different parts. He starts off by acknowledging that God's people uh, have really done a lot of bad things, like since the beginning. Like, they've just not been faithful, good people. And he says, you know what, God, you were actually... Like, you were justified in doing this whole exile thing. And we had that coming to us. But then he says, but the thing is, 
Like there was this moment of graciousness, he calls it. This moment of graciousness when God allowed his people to come back to Jerusalem. It's like that was such a big deal. But then he says, what breaks his heart about this is God shows them this grace and then they come back to Israel and then they do exactly the kinds of things that got them in trouble in the first place. And it just, it tears them apart. Do you see what he's upset about? The vision all along for God's people was that they would be different. Distinct. Holy. Holy is the word (coughs) that God uses. Um, They weren't supposed to be like the other nations of the world. They were going to follow God so closely that they would stand out. They would stand out as people of faith and they would stand out as people of justice and mercy. They would stand out as people who were just so devoted to their God. They would be holy. And Ezra knew that if you start getting too close to like the Philistines or the Canaanites or the, or the Hittites, these groups that worshipped all kinds of other gods and, and all kinds of different values in their, in their cultures, if you got too close to them, especially if you married one of them, it's not going to be long before you're not standing out at all anymore. You're going to end up looking just, just like them. And, and that's what Ezra's worried about. And so chapter 10 begins with Ezra. He's breaking down. He's praying. He's confessing. He's weeping. He's throwing himself down over and over again on the steps of the temple. This big crowd of people joins him. You know, what are we going to do? And then in verse 2, this guy Shechaniah steps up. And Shechaniah starts with really this beautiful statement of faith. He says, We have been unfaithful to our God. But in spite of this, he says, there is still hope for Israel. And that statement of faith, I mean, that is like, that is at the heart of our faith, right? That our sin does not define us, that our past does not determine our future, right? Um, we have been unfaithful to our God, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. This is a really good start. But now it's about to get really weird. He says, So now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord. It's referring to Ezra there, so with the counsel of Ezra and of those who fear the commands of our God, and let it be done according to the law. you catch the plan there? The plan is mass divorce. The plan is to send the women and the children out onto the streets. Does, does this seem like a bad plan to anybody else? But incredibly, they go ahead with it. They call this national meeting, chapter 10, verse 10. Ezra stands up. He tells everyone what they've done is wrong. He, he tells them to confess, to do God's will, to separate themselves from their foreign wives. And from there, each case is examined, and the book ends with a list of the 110 men who divorced their wives and abandoned their children. The end.
What in the world? What in the world are we supposed to make of this? I mean, I know that they've been trying to tell us that Ezra is this great Bible scholar and this godly leader. But I've got all kinds of issues with his plan. For starters, it seems like the punishment falls almost entirely on the women and children. Right? So in an ancient culture like these and all the ones surrounding Israel, like a divorced husband, like he'd be able to remarry like next Tuesday. Um, but the women, and they're finished. Uh, they're damaged goods now. And, and then their children. I mean, don't even get me started on the kids. Like, uh, the kids in that society without a dad, like they are destined to poverty. This punishment is bizarre. It's like, yes, intermarriage, it's forbidden. And sure, there's good reasons for it. But you know what else is forbidden? Divorce. Divorce is forbidden. And while we're at it, does anybody remember? There's like this, this special group of three vulnerable like, people groups that come up in God's law like again and again and again. Like It's a particular focus of God's law to protect like, these particular three groups of people. Does anybody remember who they are? Yeah, so the, the foreigners in the land... Uh, orphans and widows. Okay. Shechaniah's plan, we'll call it Operation Deadbeat Dad. Um, Shechaniah's plan would all but ensure a huge increase in orphans and widows, and they would all be foreigners in the land. I mean, the contradictions in this plan are all over the place. If you're sitting there and if you have this sense, there has got to be a better way to deal with this problem. You're not alone. In fact, a very similar situation comes up in the New Testament part of the Bible. So the question is what to do about Christians marrying people who aren't Christians. It's a parallel situation to the intermarriage in the Old Testament, right? Because Christians too are supposed to be holy. They're supposed to stand out. So you've got kind of the same kinds of risks involved. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, he's one of the first pastors of the church, he urges Christians not to be what he calls yoked together with unbelievers. And the image there is, is important. So a yoke was kind of this tool uh, to help two animals pull a load together, right? And that's the Christian life, right? Following God, it's difficult sometimes, it's hard work sometimes. And if your closest partner is not pulling in the same direction makes the job a lot more difficult. Right? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, that's not an easy command. Um, we're talking about marriages. This is sensitive territory. These things are complicated. You're probably thinking, you know, Pastor, this is easy for you to say, right? You're already married, and you're already married to a Christian. Right? But Paul is really strong on this. He, he's, he's not saying don't befriend or don't be close to people who aren't Christians, but among the people you most rely on, he urges yoking yourself with someone who's pulling in the same direction. Right? This, is, this is not so different from like Deuteronomy 7 and, and the instructions that inspired Ezra. Okay? 
But here's the difference. In another place, the same pastor, Paul, is considering a slightly different scenario. So sure, don't, don't marry a person who's not pulling in the same direction. But what if you're already married? And say the husband becomes a Christian, but the wife does not. Then what? Right? That's more like the situation that Ezra came up on, right? Uh, they're already married. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, stay together. If that's the situation, he says, stay together. Don't divorce. Same problem as Ezra. Very different approach. Now, how did this happen? Same situation, same Bible. Why doesn't Paul just follow the lead of Ezra? Tell them all to get divorced. Well, I think Paul doesn't follow the lead of Ezra because Paul is following someone else's lead. So there's something else about Ezra's approach that I think left something to be desired. So Ezra notices this sin in the community. And he knows it's important. And he realizes like it threatens the community itself. So, I mean, punishment is not out of order, right? But then the punishment that Ezra oversees, it doesn't directly affect him. I mean, he's really sad about it. He's pulling out his beard. Um, But what I mean is, people are really going to get hurt by this plan at least in the short term. And yet, it seems like the difficulty that he's causing, it doesn't, seem to, it doesn't seem like he's taking into account that difficulty at all. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't step in to try to ease the pain of these families. He's got no plan that we know of to make sure these women and children are going to be okay. I mean, to me, it's like, it's like if you're a Christian who tells your gay acquaintance, that they need to live a celibate life. They can't ever get married or have a romantic partner. But then you don't lift a finger to like walk with that person or to support that person or to surround that person with like deep community. And what would, I think all of us can obviously see, that would be an extremely difficult calling for somebody's whole life. I mean, it'd be one thing to come down with you know, your biblical view of sex if you really extended hospitality to a single person. But if you just sort of leave them on their own to sort it out, I mean, there's something about that that just doesn't sit right with me. So, I mean, maybe what Ezra is doing, maybe it's technically right, but I just wish there was a better way to deal with broken situations like these. So what would it be? What's the path that Ezra should have taken? He notices the sin. He realizes it's important. It's a threat even to the community. What should he do about it? Well, how about this? Imagine if Ezra had thought to himself, boy, this community is a mess. The sin, it's killing them. God's going to be justified in punishing this. But what if Ezra said, you know what? I'll take the punishment. 
They'll know that it's serious because I'll be punished, but they won't have to endure in themselves what they've got coming to them. What if I could be punished instead of them? That'd be something, wouldn't it? To see a leader take the fall for everyone else's mistake. If you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, haven't we seen this before? We have. But it wasn't Ezra who did it. It was that guy Jesus. And he didn't just do it for the Jews, he did it for the sins of the whole world. You know, in some ways, Ezra looks a lot like Jesus. He's godly, he's righteous, it seems like no one can find any fault in him. But at the end of the day, I think what stands out between them is that Ezra saw these problems in the community, and he passed on to the community what they deserved. But Ezra himself kind of stayed above the fray. Like, he didn't exactly get his hands dirty. And, and I mean, that's legit, right? I mean, it wasn't his sin. He just showed up. I mean, he was an innocent man. Why should he take the fall for them? It's a good question. Why should an innocent man take the fall for a bunch of sinners? That's the mystery of the gospel. That's the mystery of Jesus Christ. Why should an innocent man take the fall for a bunch of sinners? Jesus Christ saw the sin in our lives. He saw the the brokenness, all the, the mess. But rather than punish us with what we deserved, He entered into the fray. He stepped right into our mess and the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we got healed. It's a very different kind of leadership. You know, I admire Ezra's love of God's Word and uh, and I believe he earnestly desired to do the right thing. And, And frankly, I think that I and probably most of us could stand to be a lot more interested in knowing God's Word and trying to live by it. But you know, if a guy like Ezra, I mean, he's as good as they get, right? I mean, he's righteous, he's godly. If even he couldn't get it perfectly right, what hope do I have? I think the Christian answer to that is this. Being a good guy like Ezra, it's not that it doesn't matter. It matters a lot to be good. But it won't save you. And it won't save you because you will inevitably mess it up. It happens all the time. Even with the best of intentions, we mess it up. Somewhere, somehow, we will get it wrong, even Ezra did. But see, we don't lose hope. We don't lose hope when that happens because we believe a Christian is not saved by being better than everybody else. Or that a Christian is not saved by always being right. 
But we believe that we are saved by putting our faith in the one who did get it right and trusting his leadership to bring us home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a passion to know your word and to live by it um, half as much as Ezra seemed to. Um, But Lord, we thank you that at the end of the day, how much we measure up to Ezra or anyone else is not what's going to save us, but only our faith in you. And so, Lord, today, in the face of our own sin and brokenness and rebellion, we ask that you would be the one who would save us. We put our trust in you to lead us home. In Jesus' name, amen.